Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice, and Molina makes it easy, especially when it comes to the care you need. So let's talk about you, about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Let's talk about your needs now and for the future. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. It starts with a phone call. Call 866-420-5330 or visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. This is Howard Smith, and I'll be your host for today's program, New Business Paradigms, Conscious Commentary on Business and Society with Ronaldo Brudico. Ronaldo, as you all know, is the president of the World Business Academy, and I'm a member of the board of directors of the Academy, as well as a vice president and a wealth advisor with Morgan Stanley Smith Barney. Uh, before we begin the rest of our introduction, I just want to mention that Ronaldo is going to be speaking at the 23rd Annual SRI Conference, which this year is going to be held in October from the 2nd to the 4th at the Mohegan Sun Conference Center in Connecticut. And among the featured speakers, in addition to Ronaldo, will be Mohammed Yunus, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., Deepak Chopra, and a host of other people all involved in what used to be known as socially responsible investing. Um, now, for our show today, uh, just a reminder that if you'd like to send at any time a comment or a question uh, in advance of the show, you can simply access the World Business Academy site at www.worldbusiness.org, and you can email us very simply at info at worldbusiness.org. We'll be happy to uh, mention your question. We've got several in the queue already that we're going to be bringing up towards the end of today's show. If for some reason we don't answer your question fully, Remember, email us again, and we'll try to get to it, those questions. One of the purposes of these monthly calls is to present you, our members and listeners, with concrete, actionable ideas. Today, we're going to focus on a number of topics, the first one being the decision by big nuclear industry players, Siemens and General Electric, to get out of the nuclear energy business because apparently it no longer makes economic sense. Later in the show, related to that same concept, we're going to be talking about alternatives for rebuilding the American economy, including one step by expanding renewable energy resources. We also have our lightning round, a series of quick insights and comments on various asset classes, such as bonds, equities, gold, and real estate. And today we're going to have a particular emphasis on dividend-paying stocks. We're also going to have a guest speaker, uh, Lion Goodman, who has been uh, involved with the World Business Academy for a number of years, and he's going to be talking about the Business Warrior Monk, an exciting new training program that Lion will be doing with the Academy based on a weekend workshop that Ronaldo did for the Academy almost 20 years ago now. Um, if you miss one of our monthly calls or you want to catch up on old programs or you want to listen to or download the programs uh, to your iTunes, you can do that simply by, again, going to the Academy website, looking for the uh, radio show uh, tab and um, click in and you'll be able to both download and listen to current shows. Uh, we encourage you to invite your friends and colleagues who may be interested in our show. And uh, with that, Ronaldo, uh, let's begin. It's a common axiom that knowledge is power. And we want to present to you, our members and listeners, those ideas that not only are actionable but also reflect the World Business Academy's desire to bring socially conscious practices on business and society to the world. Ronald, do you want to expand on that in terms of today's show and explain exactly what this means or entails? 
Oh, uh, thanks very much, Howard, for the introduction. And yes, I'm, I'm delighted about that conference uh, back in New York in October. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I've been on the stage many times with Deepak Chopra over the years, of course, because he's such a close friend and a member of the Academy for over 20 years. But uh, this will be the first time I've actually been on the stage with Muhammad Yunus. I'm really looking forward to it. I've met him once, but never had a chance to really be on the stage with him. So I'm really looking forward to that a great deal. Yeah. I've had the honor of meeting him as well as well once or as well, an extraordinarily impressive man going through some turbulent times back in Pakistan. I'm sorry, Bangladesh right now. Bangladesh, right. Yeah, yeah. where he's been, I mean, it's, it's a longer story. I won't go into it, but the way that they, I mean, the way they have treated their hero, uh, Muhammad Yunus, uh, who started, I think, by giving out $27 a piece to five people. Uh, it was the beginning of the Grameen Bank, uh, which became a $2.5 billion institution with a 99% repayment rate, and all of its borrowers were without credit, the poorest of the poor, 98% of them were women, and for them to throw him out of his own bank for right. political uh, reasons, because they were afraid he would run for the president of Bangladesh. That's what would happen. Right. Uh, I'll just throw amazing. one local note here that the Cal State University at Channel Islands, or CSI at Channel Islands, um, has the first university-based program on social business practices inspired by Muhammad Yunus, and they actually have undergraduate and soon-to-have graduate programs in social business. Uh, again, first university in the world. And I also mentioned that his uh, banking program, which was so successful in Bangladesh, has actually been set up in the United States as well with a similar type of microcredit system uh, scale to the United States. And that I'm very proud to say that Morgan Stanley Institutional in New York is the pro bono advisor uh, for that program. Is that Finca, Howard? What's the name of that organization? Excuse no, me? Finca. Finca is the name of one organization I know that does micro-lending. Which one is the Morgan Stanley-related one? It's the, it's, um, the Muhammad Yunus program. Uh, I don't remember the specific uh, exact title, but it is, again, about microcredit banking. And I know okay. there are programs now in San Francisco, I think Salt Lake, and a couple of other cities, and gradually expanding. Excellent. Okay, well, I'm glad to hear that. We, we have a small micro-lending program ourselves at the Omega Point Institute here in Santa Barbara, so I'm a big fan of it, and um, enough of that. Let's get to why knowledge is power. Um, two things we can talk about today. One of them is going to be the housing uh, situation, because remember, I'm going to say about five months ago now, we go back and listen to the show, I said that the housing market was about to bottom out and would soon be ticking up. And in subsequent months, I predicted further that it had, in fact, had, and that you'd see that reflected. And, of course, we now know that not only did the housing market tick up, so that it is now recovered in virtually all parts of the United States, and it's on the way up in terms of pricing. Vacancies are down, which will further firm up pricing. But on top of that, we also said just a month or two ago, this would be the optimum time to buy a house because mortgage rates would never be lower and prices of homes would never be lower. Well, mortgage rates ticked up today, too. So now you've got house prices climbing and mortgage rates climbing. So if you had a chance to buy at the bottom and didn't, and you're still wondering if it's time, it probably is still as good as it's going to be in your lifetime. It certainly was two months ago. Uh, there are some issues I have with, with what could happen in the, in the election, which could throw the whole thing a kilter. But assuming uh, that the election doesn't throw it a kilter, meaning assuming that Obama's reelected uh, and that uh, he holds at least one house of the Congress, we can expect there will be about $80 billion revenue increase, at least, in taxes imposed on the richest 2%. Um, Romney's plan is to reduce taxes by $450 billion with no explanation where that money will come from. Uh, that alone will crater the economy, although there will be other things that Romney has already stood for that would likewise crater it. Again, I say this not because I'm a Democrat, because I'm not, and people remember six or seven months ago I was very hard on the president. 
but because what Romney's not saying is insane, what he's saying is even crazier. So um, I'm, I'm really concerned about, in fact, to the point where I feel like I'm Paul Revere, I have to tell people, get off your sofas, get off your couches, do anything you can to save yourself and everybody you care about by getting out there and making sure that Obama is reelected and that we have a rational economic program that starts to restore the strength of the middle class, begins to tax the upper 2%, and begins to invest in infrastructure. Uh, story after story is coming out about bridges that are dangerous to drive on, and we need to be a vigilant population because if we are not, and the rich can seize final control of the country for their own benefit, the top 2% represented by the Koch brothers and others, then the country, although they don't realize this, will cease to function effectively as an economic enterprise, and I predict there will be a worse depression than the Great Depression within nine months of a Romney election. Now, if you think that's horrific to say that, you can imagine how horrific it is for me to have to figure that out and share it with you. But that's how I feel, so I have to be honest with my listeners. There's one other thing that, 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 that's along the same line. We, in a book I did in 1997 uh, called Profiles of Power, which was a study of nuclear industry, we actually analyzed not just the environmental consequences of nuclear energy. We analyzed the economic insanity of nuclear energy, and we concluded that nuclear energy made no economic sense. So to misparaphrase Sir Winston Churchill when he was praising the RAF in the Battle of Britain, in the annals of history, never before has so much been taken from so many for the benefit of so few as the nuclear industry has taken from the populations of the various countries in the world. This is so critical for you to understand that now not only did Siemens last August say it doesn't make economic sense, we're leaving nuclear. Not only did Jeffrey Immelt on July 30th, just a week or so ago, the head of General Electric, conclude the same thing, it's uneconomic. It's critical for us to realize that that conclusion was baldly available in 1997 when I wrote the book and said so. And I've been saying so ever since. Let me interrupt for one second. Is that book still available through the Academy? You know, it probably is. Um, Profiles in Power, it's called. And if it isn't, we can always reissue it. But the key issue, and, and, you know, we probably, you know, listeners, um, starting in about three months, uh, we're going to beef up the back end of our website so that the books I, I refer to in these calls will all be available. So watch for an enhanced uh, reader's program, if you will. I don't think I'll ever uh, rival Oprah in terms of the Book of the Month Club. But I certainly think there are some books that everybody ought to read, and as we talk about them on the show, we'll make sure that you can get them from us so that they're easy to find. But having said that, let's go back to this nuclear issue. So the nuclear industry has soaked ten, excuse me, hundreds of billions of dollars globally, and year after year after year, and it makes no economic sense. In fact, as everyone knows who listens to these shows, I have very little um, confidence in the bona fides of Wall Street. I think Wall Street will make money on anything they can possibly think that might stick to, against the wall that they will throw. And even Wall Street, since I did the book in 97, has said basically we won't invest in nuclear unless the government guarantees our investment and guarantees that there can't be an accident we'll be sued on. Even with those guarantees, including huge subsidies to construct nuclear, it still makes no, nucle- no economic sense. So you will hear from the Academy extremely articulated, well-articulated arguments about the environmental insanity of nuclear, meaning that it off-gasses carcinogenic levels of toxic, toxic isotopes, strontium-90. It off-gasses these every single day, which is a crime against humanity. In addition to which, though, it makes no economic sense. So how did this happen, folks? It happened because you and I were asleep at the switch. 
and we didn't care to tell our legislators that we were watching this enormous amount of money washing through contributions by a very secretive industry, the nuclear industry, to, con- to create favoritism for itself and to corner a federal agency called the, National, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, or NRC, such that the people who went to the NRC had as their job to promote nuclear rather than to regulate it. Now, they had both jobs, but when you give an agency the right and the duty to promote and regulate, what you're telling them basically is promote. And, of course, there's a revolving door between people who go into the NRC from the nuclear industry and then come out the other side. The Academy, as all of our listeners knows, has been, extreme, has been extremely vocal in this whole thing. Um, and all of this has kept me concerned that as we articulate year after year after year, it makes no economic sense, it's environmentally toxic, ice, it's dangerous, we've written extensively. The day after Fukushima, we said it's not fixed, it isn't going to get fixed. And, folks, as I'm talking today, that reaction is still going on. And by the way, that reaction was going on because of above-ground storage, among other things. Now, we just had a decision by the federal district court in Washington, D.C., finally, 20 years later. And the decision says, you know what, we can't keep building plants if we don't know where to put the, t- the nuclear high-rate, highly toxic waste that will be toxic for 10,000 years. We have no place to store it. And we can't keep building these things and keep storing it in above-ground pools which, by the way, are subject to any terrorist can get to them, and they're, very, and they're subject to spontaneous fires. You saw what's happened to Fukushima, that fire. That's exactly what we're capable of here in the United States, and they're all over the place, these reactors. And, and by the way, you've got reactors like San Onofre, which have been closed for months now because the cracking of the pipes is so bad, they've been unable to repair it. They'll get it repaired eventually, but you know what? How did it get to the point where the pipes were that cracked in the first place and we didn't close it down? And why do we want to repair it when, in fact, Renewable energy is now cheaper than coal. So I want people to start thinking, and I, hear, and I want to end with that coal analogy. The nuclear industry extracted blood from the body politic of this country for the last 35 years, and we let them. The coal industry is trying to do the same thing. They're spending tens of millions of dollars on television telling you, clean coal, clean coal, clean coal. First of all, that's an oxymoron. There's no such thing as clean coal. All coal's dirty, very, very dirty. And as you know, we've just now come through the hottest spring on record in the history of the world, the United States, and it's so far off the average that it's set a new standard. We're in the middle of the hottest summer on record. The, incre- the atmosphere over the oceans is holding 5% more water today than it did just five years ago, which gives the opportunity for deluges and floods. Which and droughts the, on the and, flip side. Well, of course, droughts and but the same right. go droughts and floods. In fact, the, the, to finish the coal thing, and then I'll end on the uh, on the drought flood. So coal spends tens of millions of dollars trying to convince you that a it's clean and that somehow your electrical bills will go up if you don't keep using coal. When in fact, every utility in America, without exception, that has switched off of coal has saved money because natural gas is cheaper. And natural gas is not only cheaper; it's cheaper now than it was a decade ago. Significantly yeah. cheaper. And, and that isn't to say we approve of fracking, because we don't. But what we're really saying is if the, the, the lies and distortions that you're allowed to tell in this country under the rubric of free speech, the complete lies and distortions that the coal industry is saying, A, it's not clean, and B, your price for electricity is not going to go up at the plug while your cost of gas is going up at the pump. That's just not true. It's a complete flat lie. Now, we're allowed to have lies told like that, but you know what, folks? We're also allowed 
to know the truth and to ignore it, to ignore the truth at our peril, to ignore lies, and we would move forward. So here's my challenge to everyone today. If you hear anything from any source, and that includes me, that you think is wrong, go dig into it. Start doing some real research. Really dig into it. Don't do it casually. Don't, don't turn on to Fox and think you've, you've, you've heard the news. You haven't. Okay? Now, and what will happen to you, and I'm giving you a true story now, might very well be the same thing that happened to Professor Mueller. Professor Mueller was one of the leading climate skeptics in the world. Professor at University of Berkeley. A former MacArthur grantee, meaning a genius grantee. So he's received extreme accolades for his intelligence and his creativity in science. Mueller was given a grant by the Koch brothers because he was constantly saying climate change probably isn't real. He did a two-year study, exhaustive study. He published the findings in an op-ed piece in the New York Times last week, which said, oh my God, I was wrong. Not only is climate change real, it's accelerating. Oh, and worst of all, humans are the primary cause at this time. So you've got this great mea culpa from a top, top scientist, one of the last scientists left of any note who didn't work for an oil company or a coal company that was willing to say, I got it wrong, and climate change really is the issue. And that really, to me, is what everybody needs to do. If you're like Professor Mueller and you don't think climate change is real, go do your homework. And what you'll see, like the front page of the USA Today says, high, highest by huge amounts, temperatures on record, and going up faster. Last point, and I'm done. What we said about more droughts and more, um, and more floods is for years we've been telling you as listeners that the primary thing you'll see as climate change kicks in is a higher degree of periodicity, meaning events which we would think of as disasters are coming closer together in time, and the extremes, the amplitude of that wave is getting worse, higher. So the floods are bigger in terms of more water is dumped quicker. Look at how many people just died in Russia two weeks ago, how many people were just flooded in China last week. Uh, these, these, uh, look what's going on. <laughs> Philippines, Manila is under 10 feet of water in some places right now today. Okay, So the, 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 these waves of climate events are higher droughts, higher uh, uh, deluges, and they're coming closer together. That destabilization factor of the environment is what climate change is all about. When you see that happening, you know it's kicking in. Bad news, folks, it's accelerating at a much higher rate than anybody had ever predicted except the World Business Academy. Right now, we have changed global temperature by 0.8 degrees Celsius. The world nations, 167 nations, have agreed if it goes above 2 degrees Celsius, life as we know it is unsustainable. They're wrong for two reasons. One, 2 degrees Celsius is way more than it will take to destabilize coastal communities. But on top of that, the acceleration curve, meaning what was 0.8 today, will become 1.1 of 1.0 tomorrow, 1.4, 1.8, 2.2. In other words, it doesn't slow when you get to 2 degrees. It accelerates, accelerates. because of methane releases and exactly. also because of, of upwellings in the ocean. That's enough for climate change. The moral of the story is, please, folks, do your homework. If you hear something that sounds like it's strange, look into it. If you hear from anybody, me included, research it. It is no longer time for us to rest and say, it's okay, it will all work out. The bad news is it won't. The good news is... You're listening, and hopefully you're talking to your friend. Ronaldo, you know, one of the problems with all this is that we lack a great deal of leadership and inspiration 
And I think that segues very much into what uh, Lion's going to talk to about, the business warrior monk. How do we find create our, within ourselves and find other people who can take these visions of the future and put them into business practice in a way that is successful? Um, and with that, let me turn it back to you and to introduce Lion Goodman. Oh, I'd love to. Lion's a good friend. Um, let me bring him on now. Uh, just a little bit of background, and I'm going to ask him to em- embellish on it. Uh, Lion, for over 25 years, was a very successful and sophisticated executive recruiter. He understands what it means to uh, analyze and understand the mind of an executive uh, and to apply the best talent we can to the most complex business problems. And he's also become an affiliated member of the Academy who, along with me and another woman named Carista Lumiere, will be providing the first-ever training called the Business Warrior Monk Training to the general public. Lion, are you on the line? I am, and thanks for having me here. Well, I just share Welcome, a few of your background. Welcome, and just tell people a little bit about what brings you to want to do the Business Warrior Monk training. Sure. Um, well, for 30 years, I had a career as a headhunter and a, an executive coach, and I helped senior executives with their staffing issues uh, and with their growth issues. And I really saw it all in those years from small startups to Fortune 500 corporations. I saw people go from private companies to public companies. I saw the focus on the the bottom line and quarterly results. And I saw businesses ruined by very bad decision-making. Some of my best clients fell down uh, and went bankrupt because of poor judgment on the part of the senior executives. And since I was dealing with those senior executives and helping them both staff and then when, when their businesses went down, finding a new job, I got a chance to really go in depth with people and understand what their motivations were. And I saw the impact of greed, of personal ego gratification. And all during this time, I was doing my own work in the spiritual and psychological realms and always looked to to find out how could I combine this wonderful arena of personal development with the business world. And uh, through many attempts, I've gone to the World Business Academy, and uh, and I'm very happy now to be able to bring all the work that I do as a teacher, writer, and workshop leader in back into the business world in a, in a new way. Well, I think that's a great um, segue. Um, just I'll just share with the audience uh, the way this all started about 19 years ago, as Howard mentioned, I used to do regular uh, meetings with the trustees of the World Business Academy on a variety of different subjects, usually one or two a year. And 19 years later, when we looked at it, the one that seemed to have had the most impact at the time and the one that had the most impact echoing through the years to the present was this meeting we did down in Santa Fe, New Mexico, at the George O'Keefe's uh, home, which is now a conference center. And we, I called that, that weekend the Business Warrior Monk. And um, what, when I started talking to, to Lion, and I, I heard of his experience and his background and the work he was doing that seemed to be really synergistic with what I was teaching at that time, we agreed to, agreed to team up. And although we've never done this before in the history of the Academy, we've done lots of public meetings, and we've certainly, for a large-scale number of people in different countries in the world, like hundreds of people at a time, and we've done a lot of private by invitation meetings only, you know. but we've never done a public invitation to come experience something that we used to hold just for the trustees of the World Business Academy. And we decided to get together to do that because we felt we could make a difference if people wanted to attend. 
And I'm going to say what that difference is, and I'm going to ask Lion to comment. What we're trying to accomplish with the Business Warrior Monk is to help you achieve advanced business competence through better integration of your body, mind, and spirit. My question to Lion is, if that's our goal, why is it we think the Business Warrior Monk will be able to achieve it? Mm. Well, first of all, we are businessmen, and we are also men who have worked on developing ourselves. And, of course, they're women as well, so I'm just using that term generally. Uh, In business, we have to focus on certain things, make decisions, get things to happen. And business is clearly the most effective organizational uh, development in history, uh, other than dictators or uh, or pharaohs, uh, business has gotten more accomplished in this world than than anything else, and so we understand as people who are who are focused on our spirit as well as our bottom line, our own personal uh, uh, money in our pockets, that that we have a responsibility to take care of the world itself. That as business people, uh, we are most effective at solving the problems of the world, and so. This inner development, the the integration of body, mind, and spirit, is the key to turning around decision makers, business people, and business itself. Because once you wake up, you don't wake up in a singular fashion. You don't just wake up to your own self-aggrandizement. You wake up to everything. So you're going to make better decisions. You're going to be more aware of others. You're going to be more aware of the world situation. And that's going to enable you to make more money, do better business, keep people happier, and more productive in your company. Let me ask the devil's advocate question here. Um, Let's say you have someone who is a spiritual warrior monk in business versus someone who is a Harvard MBA. Uh, They may approach things differently but one of the issues always with with um, alternative methods is, is it ultimately going to be more successful than traditional practices? Who would win out in, in, a, in a sort of a, a battle between those two forces in terms of being more successful, and, and why? Well, f- first we have to define success, because if success is purely profit for shareholders, uh, it's quite likely that a, that a Harvard MBA's um, Who's who's making decisions in a singular fashion would make more profit. However, if that does damage to the earth, if it does damage to the employees, it does damage to the customers. Then you have to ask, you know, is is it worth that success? Is that the kind of success you're looking for? So we are all interested in sustainable business. We are looking at what's going to sustain the world for the coming future. And so for me, success is integrated with not only personal development, but the development of my people, of my employees, uh, good relationships with my customers, uh, not only the triple bottom line, but the quadruple bottom line with with purpose as well as uh, people, planet, and profit. So there there are a lot of ways of looking at success, and I'm interested in, in a whole life success, something that involves not just uh, my personal profits, but the whole world. Uh, and Howard, he, let me ch- chime in on that because I think, um, and I respect this about Lion, he's a very modest man. His accomplishments exceed uh, the brief statement of his biography and what he just said I think also is, is too modest. I actually believe that when you better integrate your body, mind, and spirit 
in most cases, you will exceed the performance of the Harvard MBA. And I have what lots I, of business experience for why I think that is true. In, this, in the few cases where you don't exceed that performance, it's because the performance came at a price that would be intolerable to a sentient being. Right. So maybe another quick analogy might be to say that the Harvard MBA might win the sprint, but the marathon is going to be won by the business warrior. Well said. Well said. Yeah. And, and let me give you an example of where that is. Um, we talked about nuclear on this show. If you'd have been a business warrior monk, you wouldn't have been in the nuclear industry when you found out this year that it's collapsing. Uh, you would have been gone years ago, maybe after you read the book in 1997. Uh, you would have got into a sunrise industry like uh, alternative energy, where $6 billion worth of GDP is going to be added to the state of Illinois this year just from windmills. So your ability to see into the sunrise future and to avoid the sunset past is greater. The people who were continuing to mine and sell asbestos long after we knew it was toxic ended up losing their companies and many of their personal fortunes. God help the people who lost their lives as well. So what I, what I really want people to understand is that these things have consequences, and your clarity at understanding the information that you'll be given in life is enhanced if you are a business warrior monk. So the purpose of this training is to walk you to that door, have you peer onto the other side, oh, this is what it looks like when I have enhanced clairvoyance, when I have enhanced capability, when I have the ability to moderate my own actions in a very productive way, do I want to live on that side of the door, or do I want to go back to the room that was very claustrophobic? That's the choice. Yes, and I, I want to just echo uh, Jesus' words, uh, you know, when he said, you know, what if you gain the whole world but lose your soul in the in the process? Um, you know, the business warrior monk is, is not a, a warlord warrior, but but rather a warrior of the spirit, a warrior of consciousness who uh, uses discipline to expand his attention and his awareness in order to achieve peace and prosperity for everyone. In fact, Lion, they, would they, I'm but, sorry, but, just one quick question. Would this training be appropriate for, let's say, small business people, middle management, uh, entrepreneurs, is this going to help them? Yes, we're designing this so that whether you own a Fortune 500 corporation, a small business, or you're a middle manager, you're going to get tremendous value out of expanding your awareness, your consciousness, your clarity about how you're living your life, how you're running your business, how you're doing your business, uh, whether you're a solopreneur or you have a, a large team under you. And Howard, let me throw in there so, two points. Certainly. One, uh, the, the, the point he was making about the warrior, because I know we're running out of time, um, that actually that concept came from a Tibetan meditation technique. And I, it came from a book uh, by a man named Prungpa Rinpoche, who, who, um, who wrote a book called Shambhala, The Sacred Path of the Warrior. What he meant by that was not a man with weapons, per se. He meant as a person of great internal discipline. So no matter what, your dis what, 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 what field of occupation you're in, whether you work for someone else for a paycheck or you're writing the paychecks, if you have that greater sense of internal discipline through practice, and you, and you, you will not only gain your immortal soul, to paraphrase Lion and Jesus, you will actually be a far superior actor on the economic stage of your life. And therefore, not coming to the business warrior monk is consigning yourself to a lower economic return for the rest of your life. It's that right. simple. Right. Fine. Just for our listeners' sake, um, can you tell us when this training will happen and how can they find out more about that? Absolutely. The, the workshop is four days. It's going to be in Santa Barbara. 
uh, and the dates are May 16th through 19th. And they can find out more by going to the website, businesswarriormonk.com. And that's full, the traditional spelling of business warrior. Right. Business, right. D-I-Z. Okay. That's excellent. Anything else you want to add for us? Well, I just want to say that you know my motivation, the motivation of my partner, Carista Luminaire, uh, and Ronaldo's motivation, we're, we're all aligned in the sense that we want to live in a better world, and we want our children and grandchildren to live in a better world that's thriving. You know, we're we're very privileged to live the lives we live, and we we that privilege comes on the on top of the great work of our parents and grandparents and all of our ancestors. And this coming generation is the first one to have less opportunity than their parents. And the planet is a tipping point, as, as you guys have been talking about for, for years. Uh, this is the time. We have to wake up to our own capacity to create business as a, as a function that saves the planet that improves the lives of ourselves, our communities, and everyone, and there's just no time to waste. Ronaldo, before we segue away from Lion and to our Lightner, I just want to mention, reiterate one thing that Lion just said that, that strikes me as absolutely incredible. Here we are on the cusp of the greatest advances in technology the world has ever seen, and yet here's Lion very accurately stating that this current generation has less opportunity than the last um, an unbelievable contrast in how the world is unfolding in terms of our access to technology and our ability to do things and what it actually means to the average person. It's a very striking, striking contradiction. Well, that's true. And, you know, um, just in, in line, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, I guess my segue out of the line interview is to say that uh, not only do we believe, as Lyon just said, that we can help the individuals who attend the workshop, but they in turn, will be able to help society because we are living in a non-sustainable situation. And I believe the world now needs platoons of business warrior monks. We must start addressing the inequalities and turn this into the greatest period of human opportunity for young people, not the worst. With that, Lion, I'd love to thank you for coming on the show today. Uh, look forward to your workshop next spring. And again, you want to repeat uh, that contact address for people who sure. want to find out more? Sure. First, thank you so much for having me on the program. I'm also looking forward to working with you with the World Business Academy and our organization, Luminary Leadership Institute, uh, to put on a fantastic program for business people of all kinds. It's businesswarriormonk.com, and all the details are there. Again, thank you very much. For thank you on. so much. Bye now. Bye. Thanks. Ronaldo, with that, it again is time for our lightning round. And again, for those of you who may be new to our program, this is a series of quick insights and comments on various asset classes such as bonds, equities, gold, and real estate, again with emphasis today on dividend stocks. Ronaldo, let me turn it back to you. Yeah, I'm going to just quickly, because I do this every month, I touch on gold because it's so uh, up in people's minds. Uh, a major publication, uh, Financial Times of London printed an article just three days ago, pointing out that gold is at a historic high uh, now relative to where it was the last time it, it uh, collapsed. And um, we've been saying for a long time on the show, we wouldn't buy gold at this point, we wouldn't sell, just keep holding. And, the, and so I'm not ready to embrace the sell gold mantra. I think that's foolish at this point. And I'm not willing to embrace buy gold because there's not enough data that that's going to be wise given the elevated levels that it's at. Um, the reason for this is there's just too much uncertainty with the political climate here 
in the United States. Uh, we have we basically have a powder keg globally, uh, uh, and and just to share with people, people I really really respect a lot. People like um, you know, Hazel Henderson, uh, Bernard Latier, Oriel uh, Rubini, and others with whom I've had a chance to work. Uh, many of them feel that the powder keg is going to go boom no matter what we do, and I think that's wrong. I think we can actually turn this around. Uh, by the way, I think I'm in good company. I, I just want people to know that not only do I think we can turn it around with proper uh, public policy, but uh, so does Paul Krugman, so does Joseph Stiglitz, so does uh, Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson in their book, Winner Take All Politics, uh, Lawrence Lessig in the Republic Law, Time like Money Corrupts Congress, Timothy Noah, The Great Divergence, etc. So there's a lot of us on the side of this can be managed successfully, but it's going to take a great deal of skill. Since we can't call it, then we have to say, hold your gold, don't buy or sell. As an example, uh, France just went into recession this month, following Spain, Italy, Portugal, Ireland, and of course the first one that went in on this current round, the double-dip round, was uh, Britain, Great Britain. Once again, proving that you can't cr cut your way to prosperity. Austerity doesn't work. So the comment I made at the beginning of the show about the budget that Romney wants to produce, which would cut revenue meaning tax revenue by $450 billion, is insanity. And cutting social services is insanity. Refusing to fund infrastructure, as the Republican Congress has done, completely insane. So there's a lot we have to do, and we've got to get about it. But uh, the thing I've been proposing for many, many months, which probably has more value than gold right now and rises in value, is, of course, commodities. And on prior shows, I've said the best way to play the commodity market is grow your own fruits and vegetables. And Howard, tell me what you did today. Oh, actually, we brought into the office today a couple of baskets worth of fresh plums off my plum tree, uh, grown right here in Southern California organically. Yeah, and so what we're, what, we're, what we're looking at is the best return on invested capital, as you all know I've said before, is grow your own food because the return on investment will be in the hundreds of percents. However, if you believe, as we do, that climate change will continue to keep pressure on global food supplies, which it will, then being in the investing in the agricultural sector, basically saying commodities will be worth more and more in the months and years ahead, is a very safe bet. I caution you, however, and I've done this before, every time I mention commodities, commodity trading is not for the faint of heart or for the grossly inexperienced. So you really want to be careful if you're going to go into something that's that demanding of a skill set. Uh, and therefore, I don't recommend it for everyone. I'm sure Howard agrees. Absolutely, what I, absolutely. What I do think is safe for everybody, however, and and I really want to urge you to consider, are called granny stocks. And Howard referred to them earlier in the show as high-dividend-yielding high stocks. We also so, used to call them widows and orphan stocks. Widows and orphan stocks. And the idea behind a granny stock, I, I'm kind of partial to that term. I, I wasn't sure if I coined it or I heard it somewhere else, but whoever coined it, it's a great concept because it means it's like what your grandmother would have bought and she would have stuck in the safety deposit box and just gotten dividends year after year and not thought about it. Now, the difference between Granny and us is two of the companies that Granny did that with, AT&T and General Motors, both ended up losing dramatic values. So the 2% income isn't good if the stock's going to go down by 5% the day you sell it. On the other hand, if you once every quarter or at the very least once a year review your Granny stocks, meaning you review the stocks you're holding for income, the dividends they pay, to detect whether or not that company is still strong, still solvent, still going to keep its dividend up, still surviving through what
whatever adversities are in the marketplace, then buying a stock has increasingly become a great way to generate income. Because if you can earn, for example, 2% with a good, strong company, and I'll give you one in a minute, that pays a 2% dividend, well, you're going to get the appreciation because that stock will go up in price over time as the market rises, and you're going to get 2% in the meantime when your savings will get less than 1% in a bank. Now, there was a good article just on this subject. I planned this subject before um, when we were writing up the show a week or so ago, and just this morning, literally, in USA Today, in the money section, uh, granny-approved dividend-paying stocks are on a roll is what they talk about. And there's an article front page you'll see at the lower part of this the page. Well, I'm so proud of that story because several years ago, I took that position with a company I'm on the board of called Men's Warehouse. And we sort of set 2% as our goal. So we started bumping up our dividend to the point where it got to 2%. And if you'll notice, go back and look. I can't predict what the future holds, but I can say if you look at our dividend history over the last many years, you will see that that's what we've attempted to do. Now, the beauty of that is that as long as we continue to be a strong company, men's warehouse, and you get your 2% dividend, you're a happy camper. So you should be looking, okay, once a quarter, preferably, worst case, once a year. How are they doing? Is men's warehouse still debt-free? Is it still making profits, which it's done every year for 20 years since it went public? Is it still growing? Is it still solid? Is it, you know, and, you, and you have to evaluate this, because if you didn't and you just left it in the safety deposit box, then something could happen perhaps there, as it did to AT&T and to, um, and to General Motors. So you want to be alert to even a granny stock can fall in value. But what you really want to do is buy a strong company that pays a dividend, hopefully 2%, and just Forget about trying to play the market because, you know what, it's all rigged anyway for the most part. So that's my, 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 my best idea today for asset class. I've already touched on uh, home buying and why this is a good time because the mortgage rates will go up now. And the cost of housing, buying a house, is going to go up. We've passed the bottom. So I think those are my two or three major comments on asset classes for today. Uh, Howard, you got any specific ones you'd like to touch on? Uh, no, I just want to remind our audience, though, that, again, when you're buying any stock, look at the total picture of that stock. Make sure that it is, in fact, a good stock, and do not simply buy it based on a high or a low dividend. Um, investigate the whole stock and make sure that what you're buying fits your own personal needs. And I'll limit my caveats to that today. Um, Ronaldo, do you want to segue into our last topic now, uh, yeah. which is really talk about um, the impact, the potential impact on rebuilding the American economy by expanding our use of renewable energy and how that can work. And again, let's try to save a few minutes towards the end of the show for our questions that we have in yeah. from our previous yeah. listeners. Thank We've you. got a couple of really good questions I want to get to. So um, I, I alluded briefly to... A published article came out yesterday on the lift to the Illinois economy based on the use of wind power. I've said extensively today about how General Electric and Siemens, two of the most powerful technological companies in the world, are migrating quicker and quicker over to renewable energy. Renewable energy is the is the future. Now, why do I say that so? Well, we're going to get a question a little bit later about peak oil. You know, it, 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 it's a, an interesting comment that oil or whatever you're – and right now we're a planet that runs on fossil fuel. Um, when you start to change the planetary fuel system, you're changing every facet of human society. So there's nothing bigger, if you look at the interrelationships of the flow of money, capital, goods, and services, there's no bigger thread in this whole macrame. There's no bigger thread than fossil fuel. And when we say we're going to change that, and think what this means. 
it's sort of like driving your car down the highway at, 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 at 75 miles an hour, and you're going to change your engine out without ever stopping the car and pulling over to the side. It's, it's that complicated. But it is also that effective when you achieve it. So as you continue to put more and more money into renewable energy, you create more and more jobs. And the beauty of a lot of the renewable energy industries are, you, even though photovoltaic cells, for example, are made cheaper in China, although now that's being challenged by the federal government who says dumping has been going on, all the installations are done by Americans. Uh, 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 GE is one of the largest suppliers of windmills. You've got companies like Clipper Wind. You've got companies like Zond Energy. You've got United Technologies. You've got GE. All of these people are, are, are developing technologies which are really resident here in the United States, and more are coming every day. I'm working on a biofuels project right now, which is 100% going to be fuel grown and combusted here in America. So there's this opportunity to get into renewable energies. And, and, and the Academy's book of five years ago, Freedom from Mideast Oil, is a great example of all of those technologies, how they work in, in harmony, and how you can prosper by using technologies of that type, meaning whether it's taking advantage of the current tax credits to put photovoltaic on your roof, which in many jurisdictions you can do at a very favorable rate. Okay. When you do that, what you've done is you've locked in the price of energy for the next 20 years because it's not going up for you, and it is going up for everybody else. If you want to know how much the price of energy is going to go up in the next 20 years, I urge you to look at what your bill would have been 20 years ago. You will be shocked. In fact, if you look at what it was even 10 years ago, you will be shocked. So my thought for today would be try to identify those industries of the future. We call those sunrise industries. Identify companies of the future. We call those sunrise companies. Now, they don't necessarily have to be young companies. IBM reinvented itself and went from being a sunset company to a sunrise company in a period of, of about five, six years. Other companies, General, Elect General Motors, actually went into bankruptcy, was bailed out by Obama, who then that and Chrysler, which basically resuscitated the entire American automobile industry, and in so doing created tens and tens and tens of thousands of jobs, hundreds of millions of dollars in capital. All that is true because GM reinvented itself. By the way, people thought when they brought the Volt to market, they wouldn't have enough people to buy them. The opposite has turned out to be true. Last thing I'm going to say about this, in that same book, Freedom from Mideast Oil, five years ago we published it, one of the things we set out as possible and as a goal for American society in order to reduce its consumption to zero of Mideast oil, because that's the best defense posture you could be in, we said, you will see the day when Detroit is capable of making cars that will get 100 miles to the gallon. Ladies and gentlemen, the Volt has been officially rated at 100 miles to the gallon. So less than five years from that prediction to today, and it's true. I'll wrap with this thought. When you can see into the future because you're not prejudiced about the past, not only will you do better financially, you'll better serve your families and your communities because you'll help to guide them with less pain to a conclusion they're going to have to get to anyway. So if you think gasoline is going to go from where it is in California today, which is $3.95 a gallon, back down to two, that's about as lucky as horse and buggies retaking over from automobiles. It isn't going to happen. So what you want to do is say, what's going to come next? How do I get there? And the answer is higher fuel prices. So any thoughtful person will buy a fuel-efficient car, which, of course, we're doing now. And because the president has raised, the Obama administration dramatically raised the CAFE standards, the what are so-called fleet 
vehicle standards for efficiency. Because of that, the average miles per gallon of the entire fleet, meaning all the cars on U.S. roads, is rising quite dramatically. I'm proud of that because the number one recommendation we made in Freedom from Minister Oil was to raise the CAFE standards, and I'm pleased to say we've done that. Now we'll get on with the next very, very vital part of the task, which is to find those industries in renewable energy that are capable of fueling our vehicles with electricity in non-polluting ways from renewable resources. You know, um, there's a very interesting man who used to be the uh, uh, head of the CIA. His name was Admiral Woolsey. And he said, which we quote in that book, that the, um, that the Stone Age didn't end because we ran out of stones. It ended because we had a better way to make things. The same is true of fossil fuels. We're not going to run to zero on fossil fuels. Have we come to peak energy, and we'll segue on this in a second? Yes, peak oil's here. But it's not because we're going to run out of it the last drop. It's because each additional drop is increasingly expensive, and frankly, there are better alternatives today. That's what ended the Stone Age, and that's what's going to end the fossil fuel age that we've all been up living in since 1900. With that, Ronaldo, let me kind of segue to our first question, which is very closely related to our discussion about alternative energy today. Um, and I'll begin by noting that it's a well-known fact that 40% of the electricity we generate, whether it's quote-unquote clean coal or natural gas or any or so or any other source, that is created in centralized plants. 40% of that energy is lost simply in the transmission to local communities. And this question, and it's really more asking for your thoughts uh, from one of our listeners, uh, Dwayne, um, wants to know how, if we scale things more locally, and I hope I get the sense of this correct, uh, it will impact the concepts that we're dealing with in terms of peak oil, material consumption, and overall energy usage. So do you want to share a quick few thoughts on that before we move to the next question afterwards? Yeah, I do, and, I, and Dwayne, I want to thank you for your thoughtful question. I want to invite you to, to write with some additional questions and, even, and give it a little more specificity just to make sure that we're really focusing exactly on what you're asking. But if I understand your question correctly, what you're saying, and it's 100% true, aren't we better off with the distributed creation of energy and the distributed use of energy? Meaning, I'm better off figuring out a way to create energy where I'm burning it rather than finding it somewhere else and spending 40% as how we're just discussed, moving it around the country. Um, as an example, and, and I just wrote a letter to Rachel Maddow on this subject last week uh, because I took exception with something Rachel's saying in a commercial of hers where she's saying this, the solution is the smart grid, we've got to have it. No, Rachel, it's not the smart grid. In fact, grids generally are a problem, and over time, which we are now at, they're so congested and they take so long to add on to. You know, it takes over 10 years to add long-distance capacity. And that's at the easiest. I mean, that's if everything goes right, 10 years, which is why Boone Pickens gave up being in the wind farm business because he couldn't get the energy to Dallas for a minimum of 10 years or longer. So the problem isn't grids smart or stupid. The problem is grids themselves. In other words, if there's a way that I can capture wind in my backyard and I can turn it into hydrogen in my backyard and I can put that hydrogen into a fuel cell in my garage and I can turn that into electricity to run my house, not only did I save 40%, because I didn't move it from anywhere, but what I really did, I took a renewable source, wind, or photovoltaic, meaning, or it could actually be biomass, any renewable source, I converted into hydrogen, 
the most abundant element in the universe, 76% of the entire cosmos is hydrogen. So it's like hydrogen to humans is like water to fish. It's everywhere around us. I convert this renewable energy into hydrogen. I combust the hydrogen in a fuel cell, which is twice as efficient as a combustion engine. So I get twice the yield. And I can create electricity for a fraction of what I'm currently paying today, and I don't need long-distance electrical lines. So it's a win on every level. Now, what does it take to get there? Very little, actually. It takes a little public will and evening the playing field with the fossil fuel industries, which control Congress, and we'll get there. And by the way, the technology is so good, even though they're going to continue to resist, as nuclear did for 35 years, ultimately, all the smart people will say, you know what, it makes no economic sense. What are we doing digging up dead dinosaurs from two million years ago and putting them in our cars, which is inefficient, expensive, and is basically like a yoke around our neck that's causing us to drown in our own economic duress? So if you like the economy being this slow, stay with oil. If you want to spark it into the future, literally, okay, let's go renewable. We'll get there faster with more people employed, and you'll see 3 to 3.5% 3 GDP growth next year instead of 1.5%, which is what we have now. All right. Two, two quick comments on that before you go to the next question. Um, First, we've noticed, and we've been talking about this regularly, that oil tends to go down before the congressional presidential election cycles. And we're watching this year to see if that axiom holds true, uh, where the oil industry will again take itself out of the political discussion before November comes around. Right now we're seeing a spike in prices triggered by a refinery fire up in Richmond, California at a Chevron plant. And it will be interesting for all of us to watch over the next two and a half months to see whether oil does go back down. The other comment was that there's been a number of uh, studies done. Well, before you make the second comment, Howard, yeah, I want to ask our listeners, please remember and tell your friends, if you want to see oil, if you want to see gasoline back to three and a quarter per gallon or less in California, $3 or less elsewhere in the country, just drive a little bit less. You realize if you, do, if you just decrease your trips by 5%, the price of oil will plummet. It's that sensitive. So let's beat these folks at their own game. Let's not keep driving at the same level. Let's get smarter. Let's burn less fuel. And when we do, they get stuck with a full tank that they can't sell. They've got to lower the price, and the consumer wins. just want to point that out. We've made that request in the past. I'm doing it. I hope you are. Right. Well, going back to the second comment is that if each community did nothing more than line the roofs of their public schools completely with overcapacity of solar panels and created shade shelters in their parking lots, that that energy created would be enough to run most of that community's electrical needs without losing the 40% in transmission lines. And another new factor, uh, and I saw this in Italy, where instead of building sound walls to contain the noise of highways using cinder block and concrete, uh, they did it with solar panels. So here they were killing two birds literally with one stone, creating energy for local communities uh, that was used locally and also insulating those communities from the sound of the freeways that ran past them. But let me get to the last question. This is again from Lisa Smith, one of our regular listeners. And she wanted to know primarily really, and I'm going to paraphrase this a little bit, should we go back to the old Glass-Steagall rules of separating banking from investment banking and how can we change uh, and, and re-regulate uh, banking? that it is a more effective and more practical system. Well, you know, start with what you just said, Howard. Um, and, 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 and Lisa didn't mention Glass-Steagall. That was your gloss. You added mm -hmm. that. And so let me just say what Glass-Steagall is. I'm sure Lisa knows. But for our listeners, Glass-Steagall was 
a rule that came out of the Depression that said, oops, we made a mistake. The reason we had the run on banks and the collapse in the Great Depression was because we let banks gamble with other people's money, and there was a run on the bank, and the whole thing came cratering down. So this rule, Glass-Steagall, basically said, those things that you do with your money is on one side of the bank, what you do with the public's money is on the other. And we then adopted federally deposited insurance. So FDIC insured means that your account up to $250,000 is insured against loss by the federal government. Sounds good so far. Problem is this. The banks are resisting separating, more than resisting. They're, they're, absolutely being, they're holding the fort against Dodd-Frank and against what's now called the Volcker Rule. Paul Volcker being one of the better uh, chairman of the Fed that we've had in modern history. Paul Volcker basically said after the last collapse, and, and everybody applauded him, and it's true, this collapse put the public at jeopardy, which is why we had to bail out all of these banks. The public was at jeopardy because they were playing with our money like it was their money. So the Volcker Rule says if you're going to take deposits from the public, which the public is going to insure, then you can't gamble with them. You have to keep them in the bank, as we have long time thought of this glass wall that Glass-Steagall built. So eliminating Glass-Steagall, which we did, is what exposed us to the collapse in 2008. And what the Volcker Rule says, let's put that back because we realize that was a dumb thing to do. The banks have consistently refused. They're dragging their feet. They're not letting the Congress act. And the banking lobby is enormously powerful, obviously. So what we have to do is we have to reinsert Glass-Steagall, but the way to do that today is called the Volcker Rule. And we all should be writing our congressmen and senators and saying, you know what, how come it's taken you so long? The crisis happened in 2008. Everybody knows the answer is we're going to have public funds on deposit, and the public's going to guarantee them you cannot treat it like it's your piggy bank. And to prove to you how how insidious this is, Lisa, when Jamie Dimon, the chairman and CEO of, Morgan, uh, of uh, Chase Morgan, Morgan Chase, which is different than Morgan Stanley, I want to make it clear. No, no, it's a Citibank. 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 Former, Citibank. Former, head of, former head of Citibank. Former head of Citibank. No, he's not, but he's at, I think he's at Chase now. He's at Chase. Hmm. Diamond. I believe, oh, isn't he? Uh, I, I'm not 100% sure where he is right now. So well, I'm going to find out. I'm going to hang up today. I'm going to mm-hmm. find out. But my point is that Jamie Diamond sits there and says he lost $2 billion. And of course, within 24 hours, oops, it's $3 billion. And now he says it's $5.9 billion. But he's also said we don't know how much it's going to be in the end. When Congress was questioning him, well, Mr. Diamond, but that's public money. He goes, well, no, no, we were really playing with our own shareholders' money. When he was continually pressed on that point, he admitted, yeah, I guess it's true. If we run out of shareholders' money, then you'd lose your money too, public, meaning there is no division between them. And we've just gone through scandals like the, uh, um, at least two that I can think of. Uh, the most recent one was what happened with Knight, in effect, which was a complete miscalculation where $440 million was lost overnight, literally. Uh, uh, there's the um, Peregr- uh, Peregrine, which ended up being a complete debacle. All of these things have happened, some of them with stupidity, some with fraud, some with both. But in all cases, the lack of protection for the public is what I'm focusing on. If we're going to be forced to clean up another mess, we ought to have the right to say, you know what, don't play with public money like it's your private piggy bank. And that, Lisa, is the Volcker Act, the Volcker Rule, and that's what we need to import. Okay. Ronaldo, we're down to our last minute. And um, first I want to mention to our listeners that our next show in September will be on the 13th. That's a Thursday, the second Thursday of the month at 11 a.m., as always. Uh, you can also track old shows and uh, past broadcasts 
at the Academy website. That's worldbusiness.org. Um, and just simply go to the blog talk radio um, right underneath Ronaldo's picture. And, 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 that, I, and Ronaldo, by the way, Howard, Jamie, I just looked it up while you were talking. It, Jamie Morgan is the CEO of, of uh, Morgan Chase. J.P. Morgan Chase is the company he runs. J.P. Morgan Chase, okay. Yeah. And, 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 and just the point of it real quick is, he also did one other thing as he was playing with public money long after the collapse. Now, this just happened a few months ago, so this is 2012. What he did is he retained the title of chairman and CEO. Now, the Securities and Exchange Commission, many, many months before this debacle, said it's very bad practice to be both a president and a chairman of a bank because nobody's then controlling the president. And so they say best practices are separate those two. Jamie Dimon took the position he was so smart he couldn't make a mistake, so he was going to keep both titles. And then found himself in Congress three or four months later saying, oops, oops. I accidentally lost $5.9 billion. I don't know how much more there is. So I just want to encourage people, when they see these smartest people in the room kind of people, it's the same guys that brought you Enron, okay? You've you got to say to yourself, if someone is making a lot of money telling me something, I should really look at it carefully. Or as they said in the days of Watergate, if you want to know what's happening, follow the money. When you see where the money ends up, you've got a good sense of who is rigging the game in their favor. It tells and, you a lot. And never forget that the smartest guy in the room might win the sprint, but the marathon in the long run, which is a stable economic base in a rational and sane world, is not going to be won by those people. It's going to be won by the people who believe in running a marathon and doing it right. It's going to be exactly right, Howard. It's going to be run in a way that enhances and improves Main Street and takes Wall Street out of the position of being masters of the universe, because they're not. And at the end of the day, they're just like you and me, and they make mistakes. The only difference is, I think they are so blinded by the desire to become so rich and powerful that they make really bad decisions because their judgment is then colored by greed. They're plenty smart. It's the greed that gets in the way. Right. And with that, I'd like to thank you all for tuning in. I hope to catch you all next month. And with that, Ronaldo, let me say good day to everyone. Thanks, Howard. Thanks to all our listeners. And goodbye. Thank you, Howard. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.